Tonight, we're going to speak on persistent faith. And that sounds pretty tame. So persistent, aggressive faith. I had a joke I made up about my brother and myself. And it was always what we lack in intelligence, we make up for in persistence. And it's proved out. I made this up when I was a kid, and I thought it's really true that you can make up for some of your qualities that are lacking with your persistence, and especially your persistence in faith towards God. Just being persistent just gets you running into walls. So this Bible study, we're going to talk about, do you have the quality of persistence with your faith? People in general, both Christians and non-Christians, have all sorts of ideals about God that are non-biblical. And I don't know where they get these ideas, except they skip these verses we're going to go over tonight. I've never heard anyone teach this or believe it or even dare say it. But it's a foundational layer to your faith. And it'll also make you stick out. There's two types of theology that I've always heard around God. And it all sounds real religious. And all the books in the Christian market are on these two ideals. First of all, God is sovereign. And the way they do the sovereignty is you just never know about God. You never know what he'll do. And it's a very spiritual sound to it. And you kind of hear the music playing behind it saying, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. You know, if God wants you to have it, he will do it for you. Because you can never really know God's will. And this tends to be traditional Protestant theology. On the other side, you can have the idea that God is like a genie. He's mysterious. He waves a magic wand, grants wishes. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he doesn't. Presto, all my problems disappear. You see the mysterious side of God as being very negative. No one brings up the mystery of God in a positive way. Like they don't bring up God as mysterious to tell you, oh, you're into a realm that you can't even imagine with the Lord, like what he'll do. Like it's the impossible realm. It's the crazy realm with God. Nobody talks about the mystery of God when he says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. They don't talk about the mystery of God that a mustard seed can move a mountain. They don't talk about mystery when it goes into the realm of being able to do something. They only talk about God is mysterious to tell you he will give you a no. He will grant you a no. So you kind of have a motto here that you think that uh, God is there if I ever need him. I had a Catholic friend tell me, I can't pray for that. I can't pray for that. If I pray for that, I might waste a prayer. My sister might be in a car wreck and I'd need that prayer then. Yeah, we had to do a little more discipleship on her. So this tends to be more towards the uh, suffering theology. So I'm going to challenge both views tonight because I don't agree with either extreme with the negative side of the mystery of God, nor do I agree with the sovereign side where he seems like concrete. I mean, you could trade him out for Thor. It's not a realistic view of what God is. Most people act or some people act like it's more spiritual just not to disturb God. And on the other side, all their faith challenges are strictly just God's problem. And I want you to look at how people thought in the Bible time, because it's not how we're doing it today. It's very different. So I just thought that we would look at what tradition has taught us versus what the Bible says. So you're going to have to put it up on the shelf, and you're going to have to let these stories speak to you tonight as if you're hearing them for the first time. And let these stories say what they're saying. So now I'm going to give you what I think is the most important virtue you could possibly have for your faith. And I want you to add one ingredient to your faith tonight, and that would be persistence. When it 
concerns you and God, I want you to just add this little quality called persistence. So out of all my lessons that I have, this is one of the most basic fundamental things that I found out about faith. And I want to give it to you as a gift because I don't hear this talk anywhere else, like ever. I didn't have anything to base this off of. But this is what I would like someone to say about your relationship with God, that what you lack in some areas that you make up for in this area. And I think this is one of the most important Christian virtues that you can have. I think it will help you make it to the end during rough times. I think it will help you get your prayers answered. It will keep you going when things get rough. And it will give you a very unique relationship with God. Now, what exactly is persistent faith? Well, when I think of persistence, I think of one thing, the bulldog. When he clamps down, you can hardly get him off without killing him. So you can have your own version of bulldog. I know my mother got very uncomfortable when she saw this ingredient in my life and my brother's. But I'm going to put it to you very simply. How easy do you take a no from God? That seems kind of sacrilegious, doesn't it? Because everybody whips you into, you have to submit, you have to take a no. And a lot of times it's just religious thinking to take you away from having a relationship with God when you know He's trying to pull something out of you. It makes you a religious person, not a faith-filled person. It makes you have a quality where you're dumbed down, controllable, where everybody can get a handle on you, where your spiritual side is understandable. Honestly, your spiritual side should not be understandable. You're into the realms beyond your understanding. You're not even supposed to be leaning onto your understanding. So again, I'm going to say to you, how easy do you take a no from God? Now, you would be okay if I said, how easy do you take a no, period. I mean, that's why you get a whipping. Every day you get a whipping because you don't take a no. But I challenge you that you have to have relationship with God to do what I'm going to talk to you about tonight. So the first scripture we're going to go over tonight is Matthew 15, 22. And it's one of the most non-talked about stories in the Bible. And when we read it, you'll understand why it's not talked about. It's a very interesting story because it's not about a Jewish person. It's about someone that wasn't Jewish. It's the Canaanite woman or the Syrophoenician woman. They call her by a couple of different names. And it's one of the most disturbing stories in your Bible. And in verse 12... Matthew 15, in verse 24, he says a very strange thing to the woman. Now, if you think, well, Matthew must have got it really mixed up, then look at it in the other Gospels, because each of them added a certain unique side to it. It must have been a doozy to have witnessed what happened. But a lady comes up to Jesus and needs a miracle. She needs a miracle for her daughter. Jesus says something to her that's very strange. First of all, she starts crying out to him, calling for him, and he ignores her. And you don't think of Jesus doing that. To ignore a lady, she's asking, what is she doing wrong? Was she doing different than any other person that had done it? Then, after she gets his attention and forces him to pay attention to her, then he goes from ignoring her to being rude to her. And if you bring up, he's a little racial with this, I'm not called to your people. Well, now, if you're really going to insult somebody and make them really mad and prepare their heart for a miracle, that's not exactly how you do it. Now, are you seeing why preachers just skip this verse? Yeah. And then he contradicts himself, which is a lot of fun. I mean, you see in Isaiah 42, 1, about the Messiah, that he's a light to the Gentiles. Oh, he tells her, no, I'm not. I'm not called to Gentiles. Oh, it gets worse from this. And you think about it. He healed the foreigners. 
because he healed that guy that was a Roman. And he said, oh, he has the greatest faith of all people because of he's a Roman centurion. Oh, is it a gender issue here? Is that what's going on? That Oh, okay, it's not racial. It's just the fact he'll a foreigner as long as it's a man. So all the women are good and teed off by now and offended. Anybody that's had any bad experiences in the male-female relationships, they're like, wow, Jesus really did do it here. Then on top of that, he makes it get a little bit worse than that. If he's not through ignoring her, he tells her, why would we give good bread to dogs? (laughs) Don't you like theology class? We could just all go home now and just say, I see why people kind of don't go along with Christianity. I have found, and I just want y'all to write this down, that the most difficult verses, the hardest to understand, are the ones that will teach you the most. They have the greatest treasure in them. There's something hidden. And so I've always favored the ones that give everyone else the hardest time. I think this one is going along those lines. What's he doing? He's rude. And then all of a sudden, when he says to her, theologically, I'm not called to you, he's ignoring her. He tells her off. He calls her a dog. He said, we don't give dogs bread. Then suddenly she says some words to him. And if you could have been there for this lady, if you could have seen this moment, if you could have been there, I believe you would have seen something that no one else is seeing in this passage. But I think you would have seen a twinkle in Jesus' eye. Have you ever met someone that's a spitfire? They're not going to let you like them, whether, I mean, they're putting up their walls, they're tough, they're not letting you in. And I think that lady read right past everything Jesus had just told her, and she sees Twinkle. So he has to really set her up to get the answer that she throws at him. But when he says, dogs don't get this bread, she says to him, well, the puppies get the crumbs. And Jesus so loves her answer, he gives her the healing. Now, right here, you could write Jesus is fickle. He changes his mind. You know, we talk about women having the prerogative to change their mind, but right here, Jesus has just changed his whole theology statement. He's just changed his mission. He's just changed everything he's told her. And I wrote down, you know, about deliverance. I didn't know if you're funny, you get deliverance. I mean, that's a new version of it. If you're funny enough, the Lord will deliver you, right? If you could have been there, Jesus knew what it took to pull faith out of the woman. She probably thought all those things about herself. She probably thought that, you know, I'm not worth much. She probably thought all these different things, but she met someone that she knew could change her life. And he put her to the test. It's not good to throw the children's bread to the dogs because she's shot right back. But even the puppies get the crumbs. One crumb would heal my daughter. Would you agree with me? She refused to be told no. I'm not going to let you offend me, Jesus. And I'm saying, what does your faith look like? And not only did she refuse to be told no, it says he locked it. They're a challenge. (laughs) Don't take it out of this context. And she went right past his attitude. Let me tell you something. You may be being tested on your persistence. And we sit there and think it's all about Jesus, his attitude, his theology, and all that. And it might be about whether you read that twinkle in the eye and say, I like this guy. Because she could have gone away from that and said, I'll never go to another Jew again. He put down our whole race. Nobody needs to listen to him. You're going to approach God offended? You're going to have an attitude with him? Is it a gender issue? 
What are you going to let stand in the way of your miracle? You going to put your walls down? And are you going to humble yourself and say, just a crumb of what you have would change my life? You know, people come to God and they don't see that by taking a no, that they're actually in pride. They don't see that they have something in their heart where they take those walls and they build them up between them and the Lord. You know, if we were writing this story today, we would skip it because I know we would skip it. No one likes this story. No one preaches on it. We would say, oh, this wasn't God's will for me. He's only for the Israelites. And we would write a story around his first statement. We don't think we have any power to change anything. People say, well, this is theology, is it? He did this with a lady, her first few minutes with him, a foreigner that wasn't going to hear any of his other sermons. And he put it in the Bible, and he didn't put it in there just once. He put it in there a bunch of times. So, are you with me? Are you ready to row this boat? Because I'm asking you, how easy do you take a no? Traditional-minded people walk away at some point, and they give you this pious little testimony. God told me no. It's not God's will to heal. How do I know? Read the thousands of books they've written on healing. Everything's God told me no. you got to be willing to take the answer no. Well, they sure wouldn't survive this one, would they? For the Lord to ignore you, not listen to you, insult you, and then wink at you, and you get your miracle. The first thing with miracles, you can't get offended. And you're going to lose your relationship with the Lord if you allow yourself to get offended with Him any point in your life. You know, I would challenge you, settle this issue right now between you and Jesus. I'm not going to get offended with you. I'm not going to let you offend me, Jesus. I'm going to read past it. If I'm a spunky little person in the world, I'm definitely going to be spunky with my relationship with the Lord. So traditional-minded people say, God told me no. Persistent says, I'm not too good to eat the crumbs. How persistent are you? How persistent are you that it is God's will to heal? Would you have dared to even begin to respond like this lady? I see the twinkles in your eyes right now. There's a possibility I'm right, because theology said he is a light to the Gentiles, and that he does have compassion for us. And if he was going to be willing to die for the woman, why would he withhold something as simple as a healing? Y'all ready? Want another one? The talents, Matthew 25, 14. The one talent guy, what got him in trouble was he didn't want to do anything wrong, so he didn't do anything at all. How many people are living their Christian life with that motto? I don't want to go to the prison and do any ministry there. I might say something wrong. I don't want to witness to anyone. I might tell them something that's wrong. I don't want to invest my talents. I don't want to disciple anyone. I might do something that's wrong. What's he called? He's called a wicked, lazy servant. And guess what his punishment is? You know, I can tell the Lord doesn't like it when you aren't persistent. And you've got to figure out how not to do something wrong and use your talent. How lazy of you to do nothing. How lazy to just take that kind of attitude of being negative. You know, you're being tested of how much you will take what God has given you and develop it to the glory of God. How much you will go into uncharted waters. Have I made my mistakes? Thank goodness God takes everything in my life and forces it to work for good. We'd all be in trouble if he didn't do that for us. How many times has he given me the right answer at the last moment? How many times have one of you changed my mind and it worked out perfectly? It's beautiful because it's a ride. It's a relationship. It's something he and I do together. If you take the one talent guy, you're trying to live for God 
without him. You're trying to do it on your own. You're trying to be a Christian, well, we have a word for it, atheist. You are just going through all the religious motions. You know, you would have thought the talent guy would have been that he stole the money, or at least he was sloppy with it. But it says he carefully wrapped, when Luke tells it, a mina up, and he put it in a soft napkin, and he hid it so that it would be safe. But that wasn't his sin. It wasn't the fact that he was sloppy with it, that he didn't value it. It was the fact he didn't utilize it. You're going to have to do something with your relationship with God. He does not want back from you exactly what he gave you. He doesn't want what you had in the beginning to equal exactly what you have in the end. And he's saying any businessman understands this concept. If I give you $10, I don't want $10 back. I want you to do something with it. If you understand that in the natural realm, then you must understand how God looks at it. And God lets his word stand. What does your life look like in this regard? How persistent are you? You know, traditional people, they'll take cheap shots at anybody doing anything for God. Let me tell you, if you put a mission trip down, I walk into a room of everyone telling me what I did wrong. (laughs) If you do a radio station, everyone will tell you where you got it wrong. Whatever you do for the Lord, everyone has an opinion on it. That's traditional-minded. But it comes from people that aren't doing anything. You know, you've got to see who you let advise you. Sometimes your worst complaints, if you'll look at it, you'll see they don't have any fruit in their life. They're not doing anything. You need someone advising you who is doing the same things you're doing. Then they understand the pressure. They understand what you're up against. But we've produced armchair quarterbacks. We've produced these people who aren't on the playing field, but they become smart in their own minds. They know it all in their minds of how it should be, but this is the one that takes it all away from you, that this is not something that someone has the right to pass judgment on you with. This is something that you and the Lord work out. So persistence does do that. They take cheap shots at you. And if you're going to do something great for God, buckle up, prepare for the cheap shots. They'll hit you on the day you're hurting the worst. They'll gut punch you. It's brutal out there. And it's because the enemy does not want you to double your investment. You know what persistence does? Persistence has one thing it longs for here. Tradition does the cheap shots, but persistence longs for one thing. And they long to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. They live their whole life in order to hear those words. So they listen to what the traditional people say. And they don't listen to what the traditional people say because they're only wanting to know what God has to say. So, persistence. You got to do something. You got to do something to earn your plate at the table and for us to discuss how are you doing. You got to bring something to the table. What defines your life? What fruit are you bearing? You can't take your life and go through decade after decade and still not know what you're called to do. You've got to have verses in the Bible that tell you to bear fruit, and you can actually tell me, these are the things that I'm doing to bear fruit. These are the things where I put the Bible into motion. These are the things that I put action to it. You have to have verses in the Bible that you're actually living, that you're actually doing. And that's what causes you to get into the investment. Now, this next one in Mark 2, 1 through 7, these people, they have a cripple 
friend. Now, probably knowing how guys are, they had done something to him. <laughs> It had gone wrong. <laughs> we had a little accident once, and uh, all the crossliners was carrying the um, body to get help. Thank goodness for the Lord showing up, but, um, you know, college pranks. But anyway, he was crippled. And they decide, we got to get him to Jesus. And this is a bad time for them because Jesus is not preaching out in the open spaces like he usually does. He has confined himself to a house. And so he's in a, a certain space. And so you can imagine... If we had invited Jesus to come speak tonight, and the crowd was packed out, and these four guys are bringing their dilapidated friend, they're bringing their guy that uh, is not in good shape that they put on a mat, and they can't get in the door. What would you do? You know, most people, when they see a closed door, they think that literally means God's saying no. That the first closed door that you get in your life, the first time there's too many people You think that if God wanted you in there, he would have made space for you. You think that God's will is only open and closed doors. So you take every opportunity that the devil sends, (laughs) open door, and you stay away from everything that has a closed door to it, and you say, God must not have wanted it. I'll do everything that you want me to, God, as long as it's not too offensive to anyone. Like, I can't offend anyone because you know that's not Christian. I'm not nice. I can't embarrass myself. I can't be radical. All those things would be wrong. But when you hit a closed door, that's the virtues you have to have. You have to have those kind of virtues that you're offensive, that you're embarrassing. I embarrass myself sometimes, frequently. I don't know why the Lord doesn't let me get from point A to point B without that being a factor in there. But remember, I'm telling you, faith has some tests to it. And there's a radical side to it. So these guys get up on top of the roof. Now, what would you think if we had a packed out crowd and they started ripping the roof off this place? Now, now let me ask you a theological question. Would God tell someone to take a roof off of someone else's property without asking? Would he say that? Would God say that? I mean, this is someone else's property. You must respect it. It's the Christian thing to do. You don't own it. These guys ripped that roof off. They let their friend down. You know, I've wondered what it was like. I feel bad for the crippled guy because are they going to let you down head first or feet first? And you're swinging as you're coming down. And you think you're going to go from being crippled to being paralyzed. These guys are letting you down. You know how men are. They haven't said a word about what they're doing. They've torn everything up and you're dropping down to the ceiling, swinging. And they think it's a good idea. And so you look at this and you say, these are crazy people, and you're right. And what happens if it takes craziness to get your miracle? What happens if that's the only way the guy will go home walking? It's going to go one way or the other in this one. Tradition says there's not enough room, so God must not want him healed. This is preached. You know God's sovereign, or he wouldn't let people keep preaching it wrong all these years. Persistence says, tear the roof off. Persistence says there's some roofs in your life that need to be torn off. They're blocking you. If you can't go in a door, make one. Make a hole in the ceiling. Tear it off. There are times your faith is going to have to remove some roofs. There are some barriers between you and your miracle. There's some things in your way. Don't use the idea of open and close doors always. It won't get you the results that you want. Are we enjoying this? Want more? Number four. We've talked about this one, but this is the verse that caused me to write this whole Bible study. 
And I wrote it for myself because what I lack in intelligence, I make up in persistence. And in verse 28 of Matthew 14, this is the one that if Jesus had done it differently here, I wouldn't be teaching this lesson because I would think I had gotten it wrong and I didn't understand something about the Lord. But in this, when you see Jesus walking on the water, everybody's trying to figure out if it's a ghost or not. There's all kinds of things. They were afraid. They were screaming. It seemed like Jesus walked on water quite often. But only audacious Peter would come up with the idea that if Jesus could do it, he could too. That's crazy faith. This is where I've always drawn the line here. I said it's really honestly what Jesus says to him that caused me to really believe I'm right about what I'm telling you. Enough that I'd endanger my own judgment day to teach this because of what he says here. When Peter asked the theological question, can I jump out of the boat? Can I jump out of my place of safety? And can I walk on water that's never been done before? Jesus had several things he could have said to him. He didn't say to him, look, Peter, I'm the son of God. Why would you ask permission for man to do what only God can do? He doesn't say that. He doesn't scream at Peter and berate him and tell him you're blasphemous. This is heresy. What are you thinking? Why are you doing this? You know, he sums it up in just one word, all of the theology. All my theology is summed up in this one word. Come. And when Peter asked the question, can I walk on water? Come. Now, why would Jesus do this great miracle here? Can I say were hundreds saved when they saw Peter walking on water? What was the reason? Was Peter trying to get a little glory like God? Well, even when Jesus walked on the water, it just simply to me was he was through with his prayer time. <laughs> Sometimes the crowds push you out to the outer limits. In verse 23, it was just time for him to catch up with the rest of the guys in the boat. Sometimes you don't have to over-spiritualize your scripture. It's just that simple. Because what happens is you so over-spiritualize faith, you always give yourself a reason not to try it. You so over-spiritualize everything, but you do it in a way to make it negative. Why did Peter walk on water? Because he had persistent, gutsy faith. That's why he did it. They didn't attach some little spiritual purpose to it. They just had someone that looked at Jesus and said, He did it, we can do it too. I think the idea of the gospel, if, if we believed that, we would be living our Christian life completely different for 2,000 years. If you just had the faith of that crazy fisherman that cussed and, and just, my gosh, that guy was a handful to deal with. It was Peter and the other 11. He was just such a problem. Peter was that guy to Jesus. But he had the theology. He got it when no one else in the boat got it, that Jesus would actually tell him, yes, you can do it. Peter got that the idea behind Jesus coming to the earth was not to make God way up here and us way down here, but that we're actually supposed to do what Jesus did. Oh, there's fancy words for it. Cessation dispensationalism. We have all these different words to tell us, keep it safe back in history. But Peter dared to rip that doctrine to shreds with this. Yet Jesus does get angry, yell at him and let him have it. Jesus does get mad. What does he get mad about? Peter, if you hadn't doubted, you could have walked some more steps. You think your judgment day will be any different? 
I don't think your judgment day will be in trouble for asking what you can do with God, how you can walk on water. I think your judgment day is going to be in trouble for why didn't you do more. I think this will be our entire judgment day is you took these steps. Why did you doubt and not take these? The same road that made you take two or three, the same ambition, the same thrust towards the Lord that got you doing this for God, why doesn't it get you to do this? I think the Lord is going to be more upset about what we don't do than what we dare to try in His name. I think we're preaching our Bible wrong. I think we're making people afraid to ever try a relationship with God. Oh, you'll stand up to your parents. You'll make them squirm. But these rebellious people, they will never, ever have a heart of tenderness with the Lord of saying, I'm in a relationship with you. This is not religion to me. I want to see what you can do with my life. So tradition says only God can walk on water. It would be blasphemous for anyone to even think it. They're just trying to get glory for themselves. Only God needs the glory. To God be the glory. But persistence says, Lord, I can even walk on water. I can even walk on water if I just hear the word come from you. Ask him, can I? See if he tells you come. If you don't doubt, you may could even go further. You want another one? Number five, Bartimaeus, Mark 10, 46. There's something embarrassing about people that have something wrong with them. They embarrass people. This guy was embarrassing everyone around him because he wouldn't quit screaming. But he was screaming because he wanted something from Jesus. And as Jesus was passing by, Bartimaeus could hear the crowds and he could see that he was being missed. And he starts screaming, Son of David, have mercy, have mercy on me. And so all Jesus' leaders among him told him, Shut up, be quiet, shut up. And I've been in that position. Like I had something I wanted. But most leaders will tell you no, most of the time. Let me qualify it. Most religious leaders will tell you no. Nine times out of ten, you're going to get a no. They're going to tell you, shut up. They're going to tell you you're out of order. And if you keep pushing, they're going to tell you you're not good at submission. They're going to tell you that you're not listening to your elders. They're going to quote a hundred verses to you. Just like here, the people around Jesus knew him the least. The ones called by his name least understood his heart. It's the same is true in the body of believers today. We are preaching a Jesus that isn't what's in the gospel. So Bartimaeus had a different idea about it. He thought if he could just get his voice past the leadership, the block around him, the handlers, that Jesus would think differently about his problem than what they thought. And sometimes I have to get past those in leadership to get done what the Lord wants done. But no one that you would think that has a title will ever verify what I'm saying. But you got to cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy. Do you see all these people? The way they approach the Lord is not arrogant. It's not rebellious. They humble themselves even more. If it takes being a puppy, I'll humble myself even more. Tradition says to Bartimaeus, don't get too loud and especially don't get emotional to get what you want. But persistence will cry out in your life, Son of David, have mercy on me. So no matter what reasons they're telling you no, cry out all the more, have mercy on me, have mercy. I hate to tell you this, but what will block you most in life are a lot of times leadership. But if they're mature and they're telling you the truth, do what they say. You have discernment, you know, you know the difference.
But don't let a man have to stand judgment for telling you no, and it costs you doing what God's telling you to do. I've known kids that had a calling on their life, and they give up their calling for this reason right here. Number six, let's talk about spiritual gifts a little bit. 1 Corinthians 14.1. And in this one, it said, pursue the spiritual gifts. Pursue prophecy. Pursue the gifts of the Spirit. He's just named them a page earlier. Let me just tell you the word pursue in this verse. It's one of the strongest words you can imagine in your Bible. It's a strong word here. It means pursue, desire. It means have jealousy, envy, to covet. I thought we weren't supposed to covet. It means to covet earnestly. It means to want it with everything in you. It means to pursue it as hard as you pursue your girlfriend. It's a strong word. So when people say don't chase the gifts, you got to start with verse 1. That's Paul's first thought. Pursue. He starts the concept out with pursue. When he quits admonishing you or beating us in the 13th chapter of saying, look, if you have the gifts and you don't have love, you're just going to make everything worse. You're just going to be like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Or you've got to have love motivate you. After he clears the air with the love of just saying, who wants a Christian without love? Then he says, pursue. And that's how he begins, pursue. That's Paul's first thought. So when people say, don't chase the gifts, are you taking a no? God must not want me to have that spiritual gift. I'm not good enough. There's something wrong. Are you telling yourself the reason you don't have X gift of the Holy Spirit is because if God wanted you to have it, he would zap it on you? And you're naming three people that got it easily, and here you are, still don't have it? Guess what? You're being tested. Your persistence. You know, the kid that's not quite as smart as everyone else, or quite as pretty, or quite as talented, usually does better in life because they work harder. Most people can't start success. Most time, if you have a little poverty or a little bit of hard times, you'll do it easier and better because you know it's not going to be handed to you. And so you've got to watch this in your life that you actually think that maybe the reason I don't have it is because when I do get it, I'll appreciate it because I sought God for it for a long time. I got on my knees and I really did pay a price of knowing that it wasn't God holding out on me. I've got to figure out what's clogging the pipeline. I've got to figure out the barrier. I've got to get past my test. I must pursue. If I want something, I go after it. Don't you? If I want something, I go after it. Why are we doing that with all the things in the natural, but not with the things of God? We want him to genie it. Touch me with your wand. Give it to me. Slap it on me. There must be something bad about it. It's why I'm not getting it. Then you start really getting yourself in trouble theologically because you're calling something God's given you bad. And that's when Jesus said, don't call something of God of Satan. And he says it in context. Don't do that with the gifts. Be careful on that. So tradition says that if there's a gift, don't pursue it. If you do happen to zap on you, okay, we'll put up with it. It's evil, so back off of them, you know. That's how they look at it is if they approach this theology as if anything God gave was evil. I think they're in a lot of trouble. I think the only instructions are trying to keep us from making everybody think we're crazy, to have strength with it. But there's nothing evil about it. So, persistence says you pursue everything else. Why don't you pursue, covet, be jealous, earnestly desire, chase it down? if it's something from God. 
Now, this next one in Luke 18, 1 through 10, it's the illustration that tells you how to pray. And it tells you that if a judge doesn't give you what you want, and you've got a problem with the judge, whether he doesn't fear God nor man. So he doesn't like you or God. <laughs> it doesn't even take it into the context of spiritual warfare. That's what I think is funny here. It says, go to the judge and keep going to him till you wear the guy out. You can write in your Bible, Luke 18, 1, bug the snot out of somebody that won't give you what you want. Drive them crazy till they finally say, I've had enough of seeing their face. I'll let them have what they want. And then God says, don't get weary in praying. This is how I want you to pray. Is that what your prayer life looks like? Every time I start feeling a little tired in my prayer life, I read myself Luke 18, 1, and say, I've got to be like the lady who's not getting justice because we think somehow God's holding out on us. And it says, will God find faith when he comes back to the earth? Truly, I say, I'll give it to you speedily. Very unique here. Would you say that I'm not embellishing the scripture to tell you that's persistence in your prayer life? Are you bugging the snot out of God? Is that what it's meaning? What does that mean? You must find out. You and God must have a talk about it. But I sure don't see it saying, don't be persistent. It's his illustration. To illustrate persistence in praying, guess what? You've got to change the natural course of things. People say, I prayed, God didn't give it to me. This says, persistent praying, you'll cause it to change the natural course of things. Like you can get the different answer. Don't think prayers are meant to be neutral, to be no. Don't think that your prayers are meant to be answered of, you can't have justice. Don't think that they're meant to give you a no answer. This is telling you, do something about it. I'm not talking about in the natural. You've got to figure this out with God. I've been working on it myself. You've got to change the natural course of things. If you don't like that parable or you don't have that interpreted, well, then look at Luke 11, 1 through 5. Same thing. It's talking about prayer. In a Luke 11, 1, this is a great verse. It says that if you have friends come to your house late at night and you have no food for them and you're going to be embarrassed that you have no food for them, it tells me go and beat on Robbie's door when she's in bed and when she doesn't want to see me and she tells me visiting hours is from here to here, it tells me go beat on her door, get her out of bed, and make her give you what you want. And it says something very true about the situation. Robbie will not get up and give me food because she loves me or I'm her friend. She'll get up and give me bread to keep me from waking everyone up from making a nuisance. She gets up out of bed because I'm disturbing the peace. And then he says, pray like this. So it doesn't look like that it's even built on relationship here. It looks like it's just pointing out the virtue of persistence. It looks like it's just pointing out one thing that Gentiles don't bring to the table. It looks like it's just pointing out, don't take no for an answer. Am I lying? Or are we just skipping these verses? Name me a time in the Bible that God was offended by someone's persistence. I mean, I'm counting on it when I get to Judgment Day. God won't be offended by this in me. Based on what I'm seeing. The last example is the double portion. You're not going to get a double portion of the anointing just because it's dropped on your head. You're not going to get that extra dose that you want from God just because you want it. I had someone say something interesting. I remember we were in South Korea. We were doing a mission trip. And he said, the truth is everyone wants miracles, but you don't get them. So what defines what causes you to get them? 
Well, let's look at this verse. This is 2 Kings 2, 1 through 15. And Elijah is going to depart. And the old prophet's made up his mind he's going to leave. You know how the old prophets are. They get tired. They get tired of that Jezebel spirit, and they get to thinking they're the only one left. And here's the old cranky prophet. And he's walking along, and Elijah's young and fresh. And he's wondering, why is the old prophet such in a bad mood? Why is he so tired? God's done so many miracles through him. You'd think he wouldn't be worn out. He still has a lot of energy. And so he follows the old prophet. In 2 Kings 2, verse 2, the prophet tells him. Now, when a prophet tells you something, you might should listen. He tells him, stay here, Elisha. And then he says, I pray to the Lord, stay here. And Elisha says, I will not leave you. So we go along to verse 4. And again, old Elisha says to him, stay here, stay back from me. This is between me and my God. Stay here. I pray, I pray to the Lord, stay here. Let's just bring the Lord into this. I'm spiritual enough. If I bring God's name up, you'll listen to me, Elisha. And Elisha takes one look at him and says, uh, I will not leave you. Let's try it again, third time. Stay here, Elisha, stay. Stay, don't you understand the word? Have we not worked out obedience yet? Stay here. I pray that the Lord would make you stay here. He says to him, I won't leave you. But what you've got to look at in this scripture is all the other prophets were on the banks of the river at a distance. And the double anointing takes someone who does not stay where all the other prophets are, where they won't stay on the distance, where they won't take the no. How easily can you be discouraged? If you want more of God, what excuse do you use to stay on the bank? Verse 7, look at it. The whole thing is wrapped up in telling Elisha, stay put. And most people stay put. And then he says, can I have a double portion? And Elijah goes, I don't know if you can or not. But you'll know if I go up and my mantle comes down, you'll have a double portion. No wonder Elisha was looking up into heaven, seeing if he could see anything. When that mantle floated down, he grabbed it. He takes that mantle and he whips the water, and he says, "May the God of Elijah." <laughs> and he walks across. You know, when they count the miracles, Elisha did double the amount that Elijah did. Tradition, tradition says you better stay over here with us. You heard the prophet. Persistence says I'll always be where the action is. You got to be under him to get the mantle. So if I could tell you the best quality to have for your faith, persistence. Let the other people have all those funny ideals about God. You never know what God's going to do. God has promises, but he'll tell you no on them. Let me tell you, get to know him. You got to be up close to see the twinkle. People far away, they dislike you. They're offended with you. They believe all the no's and the barriers and everything else. But you get close enough to the Lord, and there's a realm that most people never experience. It's not for everyone. So in closing a review, there will come a time when Jesus will look into your eyes and see what you're made of, like the Canaanite woman. There will be times when you will have to tear the roof off or go through a wall or to move a mountain by faith. There are times that you will have to have the guts to take a risk, like the man with the talents. There are times when you will do what no other man has ever done before, and that's walk on water. There are times when everyone will be screaming for you to shut up and you will keep going. In this context, I'm going to say Matthew 24, 13 says, 
and those who endure to the end will be saved. Don't wimp out. We don't need any more Christian wimps that have a lot of theology and no action. Don't be a wuss. Be a bulldog. You can't think like a Gentile and live a Jewish faith. Don't take a no and write a book on it. And if you do, never admit you were in cross lines. (laughs) Amen.